So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Anybody who's seen a picture of themselves for real understands that uh, instruments that measure uh, reality objectively can really mess you up. <laughs> I see a picture of me and I'm like, I do not look, I'm not this ugly. I am not this ugly. But that That's is right. because when I look in the mirror, my brain is creating a construct for what it says, this is what I look like. But the camera is just like, nah, you ugly, bro. Sorry. Welcome to Star Talk. Your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. Got Chuck with me. Chuck, nice. How are you doing, man? Hey, doing well, Neil. Thank you for asking. We got a hot topic today. Psychedelics Uh-oh. and consciousness. Ooh. Ooh. I, well, <laughs> guess what? I, one of them I really uh, I'm interested in. Okay. <laughs> I'm interested in one of those things. One of them. Okay. <laughs> right, we have our expert about town on this very subject. Uh, he's been on Star Talk before. George Meshur. Did I pronounce your name correctly, George? Yes, you did. Thank you. Excellent. A chair of anesthesiology and professor of neurosurgery, University of Michigan. You've taken a multidisciplinary approach to consciousness. I have a zillion questions about that. And the network mechanisms that empower consciousness and possibly disrupt unconsciousness. Yeah. And just all kinds of metrics of consciousness. You're the guy. Is, you're, you're, is, that, is that what made you want to be an anesthesiologist? Or, or was it the <laughs> other way around? Was, was being an anesthesiologist just uh, sparking all kinds of curiosity about consciousness? Or was it that you always had these uh, um, wanderings about consciousness and that led you to being an anesthesiologist? Yeah, great question. I got interested in consciousness studying philosophy as an undergraduate and uh, decided to pursue medicine and neuroscience. I actually started off in psychiatry with an interest in psychoanalysis 
And then I switched over into anesthesiology because I thought that would be the best field to study consciousness because of the rich set of tools that we have uh, to mm. modulate conscious experience. Not, not to mention the uh, myriad of either willing or unwilling subjects. <laughs> I just like, George, I like your phrase, to modulate their conscious experience. You mean knock them out. Just, just yeah. say it. <laughs> just say it. Well, that, uh, but actually it depends because there are certain procedures in which you, you try to um, engineer the, the state, if you will, to be somewhere in between consciousness and unconsciousness. And also this affects very real uh, afflictions, uh, nerve injury that people have, um, stroke. And so, uh, yeah, so let, let's, get, let's get right into this. So uh, you, you founded the Michigan Psychedelic Center beyond everything we just said. Because That's regular correct. consciousness was not good enough for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I started off um, studying consciousness. I founded the Center for Consciousness Science here at the University of Michigan Medical School in 2014. And we used anesthetics as a tool to modulate the level of consciousness. That's one key dimension of consciousness. And the level of consciousness refers to the global state of arousal. So I'm awake somnolent, sleeping, anesthetized, comatose, brain dead. Um, and it's a very powerful set of tools that we have, but it's also limited because it isn't really addressing another key dimension of consciousness that is sometimes referred to as the content of consciousness. That's what we're actually experiencing, the qualitative aspects, the redness of the rose, the blueness of the sky. And this is where psychedelics can come into play because they don't have a major impact on the level of consciousness, but they certainly alter the way that we experience things and the content of consciousness. And that's, well, that's what motivated other, that's, that's a whole other place to go. Oh my gosh. Yeah. On, on the research frontier. So, so consciousness then, if I thought about it mathematically, another dimension of consciousness is the intensity with which you experience reality. Is that a fair way to say that? Um, yes, I think that would uh, fall under that content of consciousness. And there are a lot of different levels that we could be talking about, just basic interoceptive consciousness, consciousness of the world, consciousness of myself or self-awareness. All right, so, and, and tell me, in the, the extreme limit of these examples here, you, you mentioned comatose. The, uh, what do people mean when they say, it was a medically induced coma. Can you measure that as like the extreme limit of no consciousness without being dead? Sure. So, I mean, one form of a medically induced coma or a common form would involve some sort of anesthetic agent like a barbiturate or propofol, for example, these yeah. intravenous anesthetics. You can, uh, in fact, measure the state or at least the drug impact uh, using the electroencephalogram, EEG, focused on brain waves. And there are certain okay. uh, characteristic morphologies, such as something called burst suppression, which is electrical quiescence punctuated by this high-frequency, high-amplitude activity that would suggest that somebody does not, does not have the capacity for consciousness. So I think that would be one example of uh, what is referred to as a medically induced coma. Speaking of measuring, what exactly are you measuring uh, 
electrically? Is it the firing of neurons in a certain part of the brain? Like, what exactly is the metric? Yeah, that, that's a great question. First of all, I want to be clear that even though we're measuring things, not everything is reducible to a single metric or measurement. And Chuck, to your question, it really depends on the scale. It depends on the experimental setting. So in the laboratory, we might be able to um, measure neuronal activity at a single unit level, for example, in the non-human primate brain, which we've done in our research group with our collaborators. In humans, we're going to be using typically scalp EEG to measure electrical activity. There's also magnetoencephalography that's uh, measuring magnetic waves. There's functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is a neuroimaging form. So there are a variety of different scales and neuroimaging techniques that people evaluate when they're trying to uh, assess uh, an impact of a drug, for example, on consciousness. And then a whole suite of analytic techniques thereafter uh, to try to parse through that data. Uh, so, in, uh, so now let's let's back up. Let, let me be the thousandth person to ask you: uh, What is consciousness? Yeah. How should we think about it? Mm. Yeah, great, great question. Um, I don't know if I can really give you an answer, but on the other hand, it's something that we all know. Uh, from the first-person perspective, it's a sense of experience, subjectivity, interiority, a point of view. Uh, some people have defined it operationally. One philosopher is uh, what we lose at night when we go into a dreamless sleep and what we regain the next morning when we wake up. Um, oftentimes in the clinical setting, we have to operationalize this through behavioral assessment. Neil, Chuck, I don't have access to your first-person phenomenology, but I can make some inferences uh, about your state of consciousness based on your interactivity. Um, and we do this all day. We, we basically are making inferences about the state of someone else's subjectivity based on their objective behavior. That usually works, but there's certain situations, um, certainly in medicine, where there can be a divergence between responsiveness and consciousness. So the fact that the bookshelves are filled with people writing with titles, consciousness explained, for example, doesn't that mean we don't really understand consciousness as long as people continue to write books on it? Because I can tell you that in, in physics, you know, there's like three books on gravity on the shelf, right? We're not still writing books on Newton's laws of gravity. So... So we're done there and we're on to other things. So isn't the activity in the field a measure of how much we don't know more than a measure of how much we do? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And certainly if, if you compare it to physics and the long history of physics um, or other disciplines, the modern science of consciousness as we know it and we talk about it really started to coalesce in the 1990s. Now, of course, people have been asking the question, why are we aware of ourselves and the world since people have been able to ask questions? But in terms of the modern science, it really started to emerge in the 1990s. For most of the 20th century, consciousness was really marginalized, even delegitimized as a topic of scientific inquiry, largely through the influence of behaviorism and psychoanalysis. But mm. then in the 1980s, Freud. there were some... Say it, say it, Freud. <laughs> 
That's right. You said it. That's fine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> tell me, tell me how you really feel about <laughs> your mom and cocaine <laughs> and and cigars and cigars. Yeah. Right. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to address that, but uh, anyway, uh, many implications. But actually, yeah, so Freud said that consciousness is merely the tip of the iceberg and probably was correct in terms of how much cognitive activity is going on outside of our uh, conscious uh, realm. Uh, but in the 1980s, there were some really prominent scientists and intellectuals that started to publicly turn their attention to consciousness. Nobel laureate Francis Crick, Nobel laureate Gerald Edelman, won the Nobel Prize for his work in immunology. Um, mathematical physicist Roger Penrose, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. I know, not for I know, that. I, I know, I know, and I know. I don't need to tell you this. I, I believe for his work on black holes. Yeah, um, yes. But they started mm -hmm. to turn their attention to this in a public way, and that helped to uh, confer legitimacy. So it, it's fairly young, and uh, despite the fact that it, we're learning a lot. And neuroscience has really advanced in terms of neuroimaging, uh, the ability to manipulate neural circuits to image them at the, uh, at the animal level. We're still asking fundamental questions like, right. there it is. are the neural correlates of consciousness in the front of the brain or in the back of the brain? Literally. That, where is consciousness located? That course right. in terms of large swaths of cortex and most recently, there's been a, a big kerfuffle in the field um, with respect to one very well-developed um, theory of consciousness that has been called out or accused by 124 individuals of being pseudoscience. And this is, um, this is a theory that's been around for almost two decades. So it just gives you a sense of the state of the field. Um, it is relatively speaking, in its nascent phases, certainly mm -hmm. compared to disciplines such as physics. So then you'd expect there to be, a, it's the, the Wild West, and that's not a bad thing. It's just the reality yeah. of a, a newly born field. Right? In a way, it's kind of a cool thing. It's kind of cool. Right, right, right. So why, do you, why are all these people who want to deny consciousness to other animals? Like anyone who's owned a cat or a dog oh. will never deny them a full consciousness of what's going on. But yeah. how about especially, your especially a cat? We know right. that cats. <laughs> now, now, dogs. Okay, I'm, listen. I'm, yeah, the cat's I, I love plotting dogs. for plotting exactly. your death. <laughs> when you see that cat actually calling your lawyer to see if it is a beneficiary on your insurance, you know that that cat is conscious. <laughs> That's right. Basically, what they're doing. Yeah. So, so what is where does that come from? Is it the size of our frontal lobe and? relative to that of other animals? Because yeah, we, we all know cats don't have a forehead, right? So, uh, <laughs> so what, <laughs> that's yeah, an old that joke is, about it. That is such a great question. And that, that taps into this uh, bigger question. And I've alluded to it earlier, which is how do we know uh, someone or something is conscious or not? So on the one hand, you have some who would assert that only human beings are capable of consciousness. Um, and again, this is where definition is important because some people might actually be referring to self-awareness. Mm. There, there are others, and not just in the philosophical realm, but in the neuroscientific realm, who are bordering more on what is called panpsychism, which suggests that everything in the universe, to some degree, has some level of consciousness. 
That's, that's like a molecular consciousness. How do, yeah. So how do we um, how do we figure this out? And you brought up animals as kind of an example in between. Well, this is where it's really important for us as a field to try to identify, and some are trying to do this. You know, what are the fundamental characteristics of a conscious system that we can measure independently of behavior? Mm. Um, because again, we're making inferences based on behavior. Even if you're describing your interaction with a, a dog or a cat, you're making inference based on their behavior. But how can we figure out a behavior-independent way to assess the system's capacity for consciousness? Because then we could apply that to someone who, for example, we think is in a vegetative state, but might right. not be. Or somebody right. that we think is anesthetized in the operating room, but they're only paralyzed. Right. Or uh, a species that can't communicate with us. Or right. babies. I was going to say, because it really where you need to go first is babies, because their consciousness uh, is emerging. I don't know if it's emergent, because that would be all of us. That's but a different some, word, yeah. It's a different mm -hmm. word, but it is emerging, because when you have an infant, you couldn't necessarily say that that infant is conscious of the world around it. It's conscious or aware of itself. But you know that as another human being, that it is definitely going to be that, barring any kind of brain malady or cataclysmic event that would stop it from happening. Yeah, and you could take it even, you can take that question even earlier and think about the prenatal in utero phase where there is right. electrical activity, where there are uh, um, dynamics of um, brain activity that might potentially uh, sustain experience. And obviously this is a question with major uh, oh, yeah. ethical implications as well. The other, the other place where this is going to come up, so, you know, the big problem used to be we think someone is unconscious because of their behavior, they're unresponsive, but they're actually conscious. And I gave you an example, someone we think is anesthetized or we think is in a vegetative state. But now there's another problem that's emerging or that will emerge, and that is now we have artificial systems that are <laughs> highly responsive and we'll get more and more responsive. And now people are going to start asking the question, well, is this responsiveness driven in part by some kind of sentience? And again, that's where we need these tools to assess, does this system in a principled way have the capacity for consciousness? We're all going to die. <laughs> when yeah. AI takes over. Right. That's, it. <laughs> that's the answer to all those that's questions. That's the answer to all of it. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. 
see what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, tell me about the importance, because I've read papers on this, the importance to you as a neuroscientist and a consciousness expert of an animal recognizing itself in a mirror. Yes, so, I mean, this is something that goes back to Darwin, who, while he was thinking and, and um, theorizing and investigating biological evolution, was also thinking about cognitive uh, and mental evolution. Um, and that um, mirror recognition test has often been used, and I'm not an expert in that, so I, I want to be clear about this, um, to assess some sort of self-reference, um, self-recognition. Um, and this is interesting in terms of applying it to um, not just primates, but also some avian species. And you know, some would posit that there, there have been multiple lines of evolution, not, not exactly the same thing as the cortex as we know it, the avian pallium, but a kind of similar functional organization. So I think this comes up in terms of trying to identify you know, where across the timeline of phylogeny uh, did consciousness emerge? And the other question is, is it, is it an all or none phenomenon? Is it graded? Is there a right. continuum? Because, um, I mean, think about it. If a bird may see itself in a mirror and go, oh, that's not another bird. You know, that's, that's just me. But that doesn't mean that it then ponders why it, its it is Its own existence, here. yeah. Its okay. own existence, you know. Uh, so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of this is a matter of intelligence as opposed to consciousness. Yes, it could be. And and actually, your your comment, Chuck, um, also 
leads to a reflection on different categories of consciousness theories because uh, some theories are referred to as perceptual, others are cognitive. And one question that comes up is, interesting. Uh, interesting. does consciousness itself require some of the cognitive functions that we have, such as attention or working memory? Or is it just kind of a purely uh, perceptive phenomenon? Ooh. Let's no, talk about getting high. Well, well, I'll get to that in a minute, but just a quick second here. Hold on. But I've been saving that for the end of this conversation. I've, so I've been sitting the, here just like, when are we getting to it? I want to get the foundations established here. That's I, why you're a scientist. <laughs> um, so if we don't really understand consciousness, uh, and on, on a very detailed level, we're not in a position to establish that what's going on in computers is consciousness, right? Can can we? Are, are you are your tools yeah. useful even if we don't know what it is that's going on right. to say yeah. that a computer has achieved consciousness? Right? How will we know? Well, yeah. that that's yeah. the question. When people say, when people will ask me, do you think? computers are or can be conscious, my response is, how will we know? And again, that's where we need to figure out what, what is the system that's required? And does that system need to be neural? Does it need to be neurobiological? Or can you simply have a functional arrangement of information processors that could achieve the same outcome? So oh, I would say okay. we so, do not know that. So let me ask you this then, based on what Neil just asked. And what you just said, if we were have the computing power like a quantum computer and we were able to replicate down to the very neuron, a human brain. So you have this trillion connections all firing at once and and you're able to program into it exactly everything that uh, the person that you're mapping was thinking and so forth. Would that then be sentience or would that just be a replication of sentience? It's a great question and I Damn, don't Chuck. have an answer. Um, Chuck, you're not supposed to stump the guests, okay? <laughs> That's not why you're on the show. Okay? No, but great, yeah, great to explore. Um, and, you know, there, there are a few things that go along with that. One is, you know, we think about it exclusively related to the brain, but what about... What about the body? What about the interaction with the environment? So those mm. environmental factors are critically important as well. But also to the point is, you know, we don't know yet what is generating the conscious experience. And we can look at lots of different network models um, and we can look at different principles across different systems. But some of these systems are conscious and others aren't. So they're, they're clear network phenomena that are going on in the conscious brain that get disrupted during unconsciousness. But there are similar network phenomena going on in non-biological systems that we don't think are conscious. So, mm. very important question. In, in Richard Hofstetter, was that his name, or Douglas Hofstetter, who, who wrote uh, Gödel Escher Bach? Do you remember? Um, yes. His last name was Hofstetter. Uh, in that book, which I think won a Pulitzer Prize, very thick, very fascinating book, uh, in the end, he has a conversation with Einstein's brain. And he imagines, this is, this is like decades before people thought of that we're in a simulation or anything. He imagined removing Einstein's brain, but preserving 
every single neurosynaptic um, capacity, all the neurosynaptic capacity of that brain. Okay. So it's in a jar. And so now you ask it a question. You say, Albert, um, you know, what time does Grand Central Station arrive at the next train? Okay. That'd be like a fun relativity question because <laughs> everything's, <laughs> everything's relative, right? Yeah, so you funny. pick a question, and then that question goes in through acoustic signals to the up to the to the whatever the acoustic nerves the that receptors. connect with the brain, and you watch it trip circuits throughout the brain. And if you had it perfectly modeled, you should be able to follow how that question lands. And how it triggers a response where then Einstein's brain speaks back. Is that, in principle, something that could happen one day, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but first of all, you know, this brain in a vat concept um, really, in many respects, goes back to Descartes when he was... Uh, reflecting on whether he could just be completely deceived by everything that he was experiencing. But um, yes, there are ways of mapping the information processing from, as you said, the primary, in this case, auditory cortex to higher order cortices. These different volleys or reverberations of activity um, can, in coarse ways, be mapped. Um, but then again, again, the question comes up, is that associated with experience? Because I could I can put the same questions into chat GPT right now that's going to have its own processing capability, and it could give me the same answer as Einstein's brain in this thought experiment through a completely different mechanism that we presume is non-conscious. Got it, got it. Mm. Okay, very good. All right, so now let's get to the meat of this conversation. Sorry, there could be vegetarians out there. Uh, let's get right. to the carrots of this conversation. The, the, <laughs> um, I never thought before today and the notes for this conversation how psychedelics could be tools in your utility belt to probe the conscious mind. And that fascinates me greatly. So you would measure certain quantities of psychedelics and uh, get a willing subject to ingest them and then measure the consequences of that and their awareness and reaction to the physical world around them. So that seems like an entirely, un is that an unexplored frontier for the neuroscientist as opposed to just the, the, the person who wants drug experiences? Yes, great question. So obviously, many of these naturally occurring psychedelics have been used for millennia in spiritual uh, practices and rituals. But of course, there was all, already in, in Western civilization a, a first wave of intense interest uh, in psychedelics as a tool to understand the mind, the brain, and for therapeutic purposes. And this is something that was happening in the 1950s and 60s. And of course, we know how that turned out in terms of the, the late 60s, uh, the, the enthusiasm 
started to extend far beyond the rigor and sense of responsibility. <laughs> Woodstock, were, just say it, Woodstock. Things were made al- uh, illegal <laughs> yeah. um, around 1970, and then the field really just became dormant. It was under President Nixon, if I remember correctly. The drug rules yes. got all readjusted. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that makes Now makes we sense. are really experiencing uh, what has been referred to as the psychedelic renaissance because right in the past 10 to 15 years, uh, there's been a resurgence of neuroscientific investigation. Um, there has been a resurgence of clinical investigation with rigorous clinical trials uh, that are testing psychedelics uh, for conditions like depression. These articles are getting published in the New England Journal, the Lancet, major medical journals uh, in the field. Um, and obviously, social attitudes have been changing. Policy has been changing with decriminalization. And cannabis has probably led the way a bit on this. So we really are in the midst of a renaissance. Again, this is something that was already a, a matter of intense interest. But now uh, we have a lot of uh, tools, such as neuroimaging, for example, lots of analytic tools, um, theoretical constructs uh, to explore psychedelics and to help us understand this spectrum of conscious states. Now, I'm an anesthesiologist, and I actually, I want to state with humility that I wouldn't consider myself the foremost psychedelic neuroscientist. There are great people out there doing great work. But if you think about anesthetics and psychedelics, they're kind of mirror images of one another, and they help us probe our model of the world, brain function. So anesthetics suppress consciousness. Right. They contract the repertoire of accessible brain states or configurations. They reduce neurophysiologic complexity. Psychedelics, one could say they give us a higher consciousness. Yeah. Uh, they expand Elevate consciousness. They expand yeah. the repertoire of accessible brain states and they enhance neurophysiologic. Wait, 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 wait. But, but, you know, the brain barely works as it is in, as a measure of, of, as a tool to measure objective reality. You know, if it worked any, if it worked better, we wouldn't have, have uh, optical illusions books, right? Where simple right. line drawings completely confound your capacity to know what is objectively true and what isn't. So we certainly wouldn't have Penn and Teller. <laughs> to, but, the, illusionists, right? right. They, they wouldn't, that wouldn't exist, right? So, so why would stirring chemicals into the brain give you a more accurate understanding of the brain rather than a less accurate one? Mm. Yeah. So that. Great question, and, and there are a couple of dimensions there. It, first of all, what is consciousness doing in the first place, to your point? Is it a mirror for reality or objective reality, as you said? I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, there are lots of different ways that you can think about it. You can think about the, pre, the brain as a sensory processing organ, uh, but others would suggest that the brain is really creating uh, this conscious experience. It helps us get through the world, helps us achieve the biological goals. And the brain is essentially like a hypothesis and model-making machine. It generates a mental model. It uses sensory right. information uh, to give feedback to that model. So I think what, what the drugs are doing in, in one direction or another 
is not so much helping us understand um, you know, the brain vis-a-vis objective reality, but just how the brain functions in terms of its own models and its own capacity right. for consciousness. So it's it's, it's an it's, institute it's, tool. Yeah. An but institute that, tool to Yeah. Cause that makes sense. Cause anybody who's seen a picture of themselves for real understands that. Uh, instruments that measure a reality objectively can really mess you up. Because I see a picture of me and I'm like, I do not look, I'm not this ugly. I am not That's this right. ugly. But that is because when I look in the mirror, my brain is creating a construct for what it says, this is what mm-hmm. I look like. But the camera is just like, nah, you're okay, ugly, so, bro. Chuck, you should sign up for one of his. <laughs> It sounds like you need help. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so presumably, um, the dosing matters greatly here. And if people's brains are roughly similar, you would expect similar reactions to similar drugs and perhaps similar dosing. But my, I bet that's not the case. Could you explain why? Sure. I think the, the dose does matter and people are exploring what is necessary, for example, for a therapeutic effect? Can you do microdosing um, that doesn't really have a major impact on consciousness? Um, some actually are exploring whether you need to have a, a psychoactive experience at all. Maybe there are aspects of these drugs mm-hmm. that are having a therapeutic effect independently of the psychedelic experience. Which, of course, is the case with marijuana. You separate out the ingredients there, and they have very different utilities. And and that's right. being explored as a um, as a novel drug class. I think the other thing about psychedelics, and this goes back to the Timothy Leary days, is the concept of set and setting. Um, that unlike other drug classes, where maybe you give dose X and you get response Y, obviously it's going to vary across the population. Uh, but with psychedelics, the the set or the mindset going into the experience and the setting or the environment can have yeah. a major influence on um, what the subjective experience is. Of course is. it would. would so it? Yeah. even at a similar right. dose yeah. in the same person, uh, going into it, you know, in a certain mood or with a certain orientation, having this at a hospital versus a naturalistic setting could evoke very different kinds of experiences. Good trip, bad trip. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you're successful, um, if you're supremely successful in this exercise, you and your colleagues, um, and I've said this, but only because it felt like it would be true, not because I really knew. If you're successful in treating mental health, we won't need psychologists or psychologists in the future because you just go into the brain and fix the brain. Rather than, oh, lay on the couch and talk to me for three hours a week and do that for three years and maybe we'll, you'll be cured. You're, yeah. you're coming at it from a whole other place. So I've said this. I've gotten yeah, only let's... mild pushback because I think deep down people know it could be true, if not will be true, that psychology is to neuroscience as alchemy is to chemistry. Ooh. Well, it, that's not good for psychology. No, no, what I'm saying is you have to begin somewhere. I'm not faulting alchemists. They bet on the wrong well, horse, but they well, kept no, good they notes. They bet on the wrong, yeah. But they kept so, notes, and they the foundations of the, the early periodic table were there, you know. But we learned no, there, there's a better way to do this, a more reliable way. So, could you okay. just react to what I just said? I should, I'm reacting right now. No. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a it's a great question, and and another way I want to just reframe this is 
know, what is the mechanism of therapeutic action of the psychedelics? And there are a couple of different possibilities. Some would say it's just the drug in the brain. There's something that's going on at the molecular level. It's going to induce neuroplasticity, maybe a dendritic spine arborization and neurons. And we can engineer a drug that doesn't even have to have any experience. Mm-hmm. Others would say, well, it's not just the drug in the brain. It's the experience that the drug evokes. And there is something that the person and the brain learns about itself through that experience, and that's essential. And others might say, no, it is actually the therapy, it's the therapeutic intervention, it's the psychotherapy. The drug is just creating the conditions for growth, but it's the therapy that's actually doing the work, or it might be some combination. So it's kind of kind of like planting planting a a a, a field. You got to prepare the the ground, you got to have the seeds, you have to have Mm -hmm. the water. All these things come together. You know, it's not just one of those things. But it's, Mm. it's an, I don't know the answer, but it's an empirical question. And if we find out that these so-called non-hallucinogenic psychedelic analogs or psychoplastogens can have an impact on depression without any therapy and without any associated psychedelic experience, that would help us answer. But we are seeing some some evidence, not necessarily of that per se, but there is some evidence pointing towards that when you look at PTSD patients who go through these psychedelic experiences. Many of them basically say, I don't have PTSD anymore. Yes. Well, there, there certainly is empirical evidence that some of the protocols used in these trials, which often include a psychedelic drug, support during the psychedelic experience, and then psychotherapy or integration afterwards are effective. And what's unique, I think, and what differentiates uh, psychedelics from traditional antidepressant medications is that they can sometimes have an impact that's durable beyond the drug being in your body. I was going to ask After a single session, as opposed to a traditional... uh, antidepressant might take four to six weeks for a mood effect, psilocybin or ketamine, it's almost immediate. And that's important if you think about somebody who's acutely suicidal mm. or who might be in a palliative care situation with cancer. That's the, other, that's the other area where these cancer patients go through these psychedelic experiences and they come out of it and invariably they come out and say, I'm cool now. I, I'm I'm not afraid to die anymore. Well, I'm no mm-hmm. longer overly anxious or no longer anguish about the fact that I know I have a terminal disease. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that that is uh, one area trying to treat or or help existential distress uh, in the dying process. Again, uh, was explored in the 1960s. Is being actively explored again with psychedelics. Wow. So I'm delighted to just bear witness to the birth of a field and watching this unfold in real time, uh, right in front of our eyes. And I, I have friends who were microdosing and uh, who had uh, neurological, uh, emotional uh, challenges, and they only speak highly of that experience. And so, uh, to the extent that science continues to, with the, with phase one, two, three trials, or whatever is necessary in the field. Uh, I look forward to where this is going. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, George. Now, now uh, Doc, I got to ask you, and this is the most important question. And we got to wrap. We got to oh, okay. run out of time. Well, again. then I'm glad yeah. I'm getting this question in because it, it's it in. seriously mm-hmm. important. Okay. Where where do I get these drugs? What's <laughs> I, he's got a van out back. <laughs> a, good, yeah, a, good, a good time to wrap up. Uh, 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 offline, we will learn where. I, I do. I do need to say, and this is important, that you know we are really trying to adhere to the most rigorous, the most responsible standards in our work. Um, I'm looking at the big picture and the and the long game. Uh, it's great to be enthusiastic, but we also have to be self-critical if we want this to become part of mainstream medicine. And so my tagline always is, we shouldn't stigmatize psychedelic research, neither should we romanticize it. We need to mm. treat this with seriousness just like we would any other drug research. That is, that is a sentence to end a oh, show well, on right if there. If I ever heard one. Yeah. Dr. George Marshore, thanks for being back on Star Talk. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight to catch up on what you're doing in your field, you and your colleagues. And uh, keep up the good work. Uh, like I said, that's a whole, we're witnessing mm-hmm. the birth of a branch yeah. of science that could be chum, just become commonplace and routine in the decades. And please to send, come. Me a, send me an email right. on where I can get those drugs. <laughs> send me a sample. <laughs> Chuck, let's end this before Chuck loses it. All right. Well, this has been Star Talk. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist, all about psychedelics and consciousness. Again, uh, Doc, thanks for being on the show. Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. All right. Neil deGrasse Tyson here. As always, keep looking up. Keep looking up.